Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon, dot U-S, to learn more. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today it's my interview with self-proclaimed death scholar, Candy K. Can. We discuss the ways we cope with death around the world, from funeral foods to corpse maintenance. You take the people out of their graves every year and you clean them up, you brush their hair. You you take the corpse out of the grave every year? Yes, yes, you do. There, you're really interacting with the dead. We'll hear more from Candy later on in the show. But first, we're getting a lesson in the art of catfish noodling. Tennis players have rackets, golfers have their clubs, but catfish noodlers, they use nothing but bare hands. You ask people, they think you're crazy or you're nuts if you're going to do it. And to me, it's the easiest fishing form there is. <laughs> I mean, when you ain't got to have no rod and reel, all you got to do is have a way to get in the water. What else can you use? That was a clip from a documentary called Oki Noodling. Joining me now is the documentary's director, Bradley Beasley. Bradley, welcome to Milk Street. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me. So I'm just going to jump right in here. Uh, <laughs> let me see if I get this right. You jump into a river, you go around the riverbank and look for holes, and you 
check out whether there's a large catfish in them, and you offer up your fingers, which the catfish thinks is something good to eat, chomps down in your hand, and you put your arm in and grab it by the gills and pull it out of the hole. Is that, is that a pretty good description of catfish noodling? I mean, that's fairly accurate. Most people grab their bottom lip, which is kind of like grabbing a hold of a suitcase or something. <laughs> because if you go up through the gills, you have a chance of hurting them. And most of the guys that I go out with, and myself included, want to catch the fish, maybe take a picture, and then put it right back exactly in the same hole in which you caught the catfish. And um, the main reason that the catfish is going to come and bite you is because they are protecting their nest. Both the male and the female are in there guarding the eggs. And so catfish newlings really only applicable for about two and a half months out of every year and that happens to be june july and a little bit in august because that's when the catfish are nesting you say the males find a hole and clear it out with their tail and then they find the female chaser in there and they guard the eggs so the hole is less mucked up and muddy is that i mean how could you tell a catfish hole from just a regular hole yeah, that's right. It's because it's they call it a good cleaned out hole. <laughs> so there's no debris in there, and they build up a kind of a little edge, like a the edge of a bowl. But still, <laughs> the the thing that struck me is that there are other things in holes and banks and in rivers, like water moccasins and snapping turtles and a few other things. So there's potentially an element for surprise in all of this, right? Yeah, occasionally, but I mean, most of these spots are are vetted out, you know, through generations. Okay, so the obvious question is, do catfish have teeth? And what does it feel like when a 30-pound catfish clamps down on your forearm or your hand? Yeah, so they've got sandpaper-like teeth. It does not feel good. Um, The teeth don't hurt that bad really it's the power of their jaws i mean it's like a little baby bulldog or something grabbing onto you the the force i mean i've been doing it for 22 years or so and that first time you get bit each season you're like oh yeah geez i forgot what that feels like oh god there's another one right behind him. This is big. Okay, watch out. I got a. You got a string of things? I got it through both sides. Right here. Grab it right here. Taking boat. Oh, yeah. So you made your film, Okie Noodling, back in 2001. So what was it about noodling that you wanted to document or put on film? Was it the people? Was it the sport? Yeah, so. First of all, I'm looking for a good character. And with with Okie Noodling, we had um, the Baggett family that was three generations strong of noodlers. And then we had Lee McFarlane, uh, who was kind of a, a hot shot and liked to talk shit on the other noodlers. And then we had Catfish Jerry Ryder, who was just kind of out of his mind. Um, but I think because it was so hard to find these guys and kind of clandestine when we started out and just to understand how welcoming these guys were and how they just delighted in seeing somebody that never been bit by a catfish get bit for the first time. And that was exciting to me to know that this was a, a sport that was welcoming and that anybody could do it because you just don't need anything. So how does the tournament work? Uh, is it throughout the whole state? How do they monitor everything? How does it work? Yeah, so the the tournament that I held for 15 years, the Okie Noodling Tournament in Paul's Valley, guys could enter the tournament and fish in any any body of water within the state of Oklahoma. And the other requirement was you had to catch the fish within 
24 hours of the weigh-in. And the, the biggest fish is, you know, the big winner. The biggest winner goes to Tim Sookie, who is 114 pounds. Folks, that's a lot of fish for one day. These guys getting these with their hands, you know, I make my own bait. I'm not sticking my <laughs> hand in nothing. So now that the sport has, I guess, really caught on, do you feel like it's lost some of its authentic charm? Um, you know, I have dreams about this stuff, about catching a big catfish. Like, I guess around March, when it starts to warm up, I start having these noodling dreams. I mean, for me, the, the charm and the romance is just, you know, looking forward to this two and a half months each year in which you can go with your family and friends and recreate your childhood. Uh, it kind of gives you an excuse to have all these adventures. And that part of it is still very appealing to me. And don't get me wrong, I love catching the fish. But it also, you know, you, you see bald eagles, you see alligator gars. Like, it, it's a fun adventure, noodling to me. Bradley, it's been a pleasure and uh, all the best for the next season. All right, man. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. That was filmmaker Bradley Beasley. He's a recreational catfish noodler and also director of the 2001 documentary, Okie Noodling. Now it's time to answer your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television, also author of Home Cooking 101. So you did Good Morning America, the food prep. You know, I've done a bunch of morning shows over the years, too. But those shows have changed a lot. You know, they used to have in-house, like, two or three full-time stylists and right. cooks. Right, They come in, everything was prepped. Food was a really big part of it. What do you think about why things have changed in terms of food on morning shows? I think a lot of it has to do with money, to have to pay, you know, right. all those people to prep all that food. And, you know, sometimes you'd even have a prop stylist as right. well as the food stylist. Right. My girlfriend, Karen Pickus, still works at Good Morning America doing all of that. She's a one-man band, really. I mean, she just has a couple of prop guys who help her prep every so often. I can't believe what she does. Well, people don't realize that before the cameras start, there are hours of work that have gone in Absolutely. to prep it, and the food has to be staged out because you only have three or four minutes. Yeah, and it's live. And it's live, and so yeah. there were probably two, maybe three people working on this from five in the morning. The hosts, you know, zip in for three or four minutes and zip out. But, you know, one of the nice things about the shows is you get to know these different hosts. And there's some really nice, interesting people in that yeah. In business. Yeah, but, there were. But what goes on behind the scenes in the food is, it's is a whole really different interesting. Yeah. Okay, let's take a call. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Uh, this is Mark from Ambler outside of Philadelphia. Well, how can we help you today, Mark? I have some questions about garlic, about how to prepare it and use it in meals. Uh, there's so many different ways of getting it ready. You can crush it or slice it or mince it or press it or whatever. And then also, when do you add it to a recipe? Sometimes I add it in the beginning, but then it gets kind of brown and crispy and bitter. Or I wait to the end and I end up with these little white nothings that don't even add any flavor. Help me with this, please. Well, there's so much to say about garlic, and Chris and I don't agree, so I'm glad I get to go first here. <laughs> uh, the finer you chop it, the more you disturb the cells, you know, the stronger the flavor gets. If you cook it low and slow, you're going to get a more mild aroma out of it. What I do when I'm, say, sautéing vegetables and I want to add some garlic to them is I sauté the vegetables till they're almost done, and then I add the minced garlic at the end for about 30 seconds, and that way I get a nice garlic flavor. If I want a more subtle garlic flavor, I'll either roast the garlic, you know, cut off the top, drizzle it with olive oil, wrap it in foil, a whole head, and put it in the oven, you know, say 350 for quite a while till it's very soft, and then squeeze it out and use it. Or I'll cook it slowly, whole or crushed in olive oil, starting with cold oil to sort of infuse the oil. Ah. And then I either remove it and add whatever else, or I'll leave it in if the rest of the ingredients are going to cook gently. The other thing I wanted to mention is that it is fresh to begin with. The older the garlic, the less moisture that's in it, the more bitter it's going to be, the more intense and hot and garlicky it's going to be. 
Obviously, if you mince it and add it raw, that's going to be the most intense garlic flavor possible. Now, here comes Chris. (laughs) There are two kinds of advice. There's good advice, like brush your teeth twice a day. And there's really bad advice, like mince your garlic. So I feel very strongly about this. Never, ever mince your garlic. And I say that because nobody does a good job of it. You get a really bad garlic flavor, and you're really inclined to overcook it in the pan. So here's some choices. Sarah did mention you can crush whole cloves and throw them into the olive oil or whatever and don't actually serve them. You can take them out, but it flavors the oil. That's what the Italians do, and that's why you never get garlic breath in Italy. Two, you can slice garlic cloves, which I like to do, which does not break down the cell membranes like Sarah pointed out which means they're much less likely to get overcooked and burn and will not give you that horrible aftertaste. That's my preferred method. And you can do that very quickly with a decent knife, by the way. The other thing is if you're going to use garlic in a vinaigrette, for example, or it's going to be whisked up in something, grating garlic, which is not the most fun thing to do, but it breaks it down so much that the garlic will dissolve into oil or vinegar, which is nice. You don't get bits and pieces I say whole cloves that are crushed, slice the cloves, which I love, or grate it. Those are my three choices. Okay. I mean, Sarah and I agree on most things, but this is clearly not. You know, this is a bone of contention, (laughs) as you can see. Anyway. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name's Brittany Dahl. I'm calling from Macomb, Illinois. Hi, Brittany. How can we help you today? Well, I'm actually calling to inquire about a peculiar pickle recipe that was gifted to me by a patient at work. The recipe is called Sun Pickles. When I saw the recipe, I thought it was so interesting because it was fermented in the sun, but also it had a piece of rye bread added to the jar. I live on a farm in Illinois, and I have a huge garden every year, so any new pickle recipes, especially fermented pickles, always sparks my interest. My question today is, what is the science behind adding the rye bread to the brine, and why are the pickles fermented in the sun? The thing about naturally fermented pickles is, you know, you just sort of let them do their own thing. When you've made the other kind of pickles, you've set up a brine and coached them along, and you've Mm -hmm. followed recipes from reliable sources. So sun pickles, the idea is you throw them all in a jar and then put them in the sun and let them do their thing? Yeah. The thing about that that worries me is that the temperature might get too high for the fermentation to happen properly. And that Mm -hmm. would kill the whole process, and then you have the problem of bacteria. I'm notorious for never having wanted to make pickles because I was sure I was going to kill somebody. It's an exact science, and it's very important to have the right amount of acid, the right amount of salt, the right temperatures, you know. It makes me a little nervous, this sun pickle, because you can't control the temperature at all. I would find a recipe from a reputable source, like the National Center for Home Food Preservation or USDA Guide to Home Canning, and get a recipe from them that's tried and true so you don't (laughs) kill yourself or anybody else. Anyway, let's see what Chris has to say. What, you don't want to kill people with your homemade pickle recipe? Oh, God. Sarah, you're getting so conservative. I know, really. Well, to answer one question, the bread's there for the sugar content for the fermentation. Mm-hmm. It's feeding fermentation. I agree with Sarah. The temperature out of the sun seems... Loosey-goosey. Yeah. Are you just pouring vinegar? What are you using as a liquid here? So the brine recipe is about 20% vinegar, 5% salinity. I agree with Sarah. You don't want to mess around with this. I do quick pickles, which are used all the time in like Japan and other places where you mm-hmm. submerge carrots, cukes, whatever you want for about 15 minutes, 20 minutes in a brine vinegar mixture. That works great. But I would definitely go with something that's tried and true. If it's sitting out in an 85-degree day, you might kill off the fermentation process, right? It gets too hot, mm-hmm. which means that other bacteria have a chance to grow. I'm usually not a nervous person, but when mm-hmm. it comes to this, I'm a little nervous. Have you tried the recipe? After I was given the recipe, I've tried many batches, and I've been tweaking small things. I have found that when you do have them out in the sun, they get soft way too fast. I've been doing my latter batches on the picnic table in a covered area, so not in the direct sun. Does that work better? 
yeah, it seems to work great, and people absolutely love them. I started reading The Art of Fermentation. That has been very enlightening. Well, that's a good book. It sounds like you know more about it than we do because you've done it more. I think we all agree leaving it out in the sun is probably not a great idea. Yeah. You could always just call them Are You Feeling Lucky Pickles, you know. <laughs> that's, that's, it's a Clint Eastwood recipe. Uh, yeah, there you go. Okay. Take okay. care. Thank you. All right. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Sarah and I are here to answer your culinary questions. Give us a ring anytime. Our number, 855-426-9843. One more time. 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Greg from San Francisco. Oh, lovely San Francisco. How can we help you today? Yeah, so I'm intrigued about induction stoves. There seems to be this real trend towards using it, and I was just wondering from your experience if induction stoves are equally uh, adjustable as a gas stove in in terms of switching from gas to induction. Induction is hands down the greenest of all options. It works by electromagnetism. So it's the pan that heats up, not the burner, so that there's fewer accidents. There's no open flame. It's great in high altitude. You can boil water much faster. The only caveat is you have to have the right kind of pan. And we're talking about cast iron, enameled cast iron, stainless steel. If I was going to get a new stovetop, I would absolutely get induction. The thing about gas, we love it as chefs because you can see what you're doing. And also it changes from high to low so quickly. So you lose the visual with an induction. But overall, I think induction is the way to go, and it's so much better for the planet. Okay, Chris. We have eight of them in Milk Street for the cooking school. We also use them as backup stovetops. And I've cooked on it a lot. Sarah's right that they're powerful. You can boil water in the same amount of time as you could on gas. It also, it will adjust as quickly as gas, actually. You can go from a nine setting down to a one setting, and it'll be an instantaneous shift. The performance is fine. The problem is the controls, instead of just having a knob to turn, which you know is still the best way to control anything, right? Like your radio or anything in your car you have a sliding scale, so you have to put your finger on it. So in order to turn this thing on, you got to hit the power button at the bottom left. Then you have to hit the square that is the burner you want to use. And then you have to slide your finger along this horizontal bar, and the number shows up at what level of heat you want. Doing that quickly while you're cooking or doing something else is not always easy. And it's not always easy to get to a five or to a six. It's not very precise, especially if your fingers are a little greasy or dirty. So the controls are terrible, at least in the ones we have. But the performance is fine. And the other thing, as Sarah mentioned, you need magnetic pans. At a scale of one to ten, gas is a ten. I would say induction's a five or a six just because of the controls. If you take the pan off the burner, if the stovetop is still on, it starts beeping. So it has mm-hmm. <laughs> it just drives you crazy. So it has a lot of benefits over gas. I vastly prefer gas, but that's that's just me. No, it's good to know. One last thing. Where we are, induction stovetop has different fire regulations than gas, which means in terms of putting in hoods and other things. So you may find if you install induction, maybe a less expensive install because you don't need as much venting. But that's something you should look into locally. I mean, they do a great job. It's just the control. I do believe there's new iterations. The performance is great. Just check out the controls. And if they get better controls, then go ahead. Yeah. Excellent. That's been really helpful. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, Craig, thanks. Okay, Craig. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. This is Mill Street Radio. Coming up, funeral tubes, sin eaters, and living room corpses. We're talking about the role of food in grieving, right after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. 
Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. <laughs> there are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an allagash white. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like, um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Most of Your Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my conversation with deaf scholar Candy K. Can. She edited the book Dying to Eat, Cross-Cultural Perspectives on Food Death and the Afterlife. Candy, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here. I don't know why. I really enjoy talking about death. I, I, I guess you do, too, um, <laughs> hopefully. Um, but one of the things you, you say is the definition of death is not universal, some cultures see it as a process, others as a single moment. And, and we'll get to food and funerals soon. But could you talk about that? Because I thought that was a pretty interesting uh, thing to say. 
Oh, absolutely. So one of the things I think a lot of people think of death as an end point, but in reality, each culture defines it differently. In some cultures, it's a process. It can occur over a number of weeks, even in a number of years. But I think medical culture has kind of shaped the way that Western cultures, in particular industrial cultures, uh, view death. You say some cultures care for the dead and others remember the dead. So some cultures feel the dead are still with them in some way, and other cultures feel that they're not, right? Yeah, so there is a death studies scholar named Tony Walter in the UK. He's a sociologist, and he specializes in examinations of death and culture. So he's the one that first recommended this distinction to me, that perhaps some cultures care for the dead while others remember the dead. And I really think that the function is very different. So when you care for the dead, it's a renegotiation of the status of the deceased person while allowing the living to retain an active and participatory relationship with the dead and their new state. But remembering the dead is really much more a renegotiation of life without the deceased. So there you're trying to figure out how to move forward in life without the dead. So let's do a little history. You said in the ancient Roman world it was common practice to build tubes connecting the tops of the graves to the crypts themselves. Mourners would regularly pour food and drink offerings, bread and wine, into these tubes. And this is the part whose other end would be placed in the mouth of the corpse to feed the dead. Yeah, don't you love that? I, I love that picture in which we're actively yes. caring for yeah. the dead and feeding them. I mean, we see the same thing in the contemporary church where you take communion on behalf of and in order to remember the dead, um, in order to you know participate in this kind of uh, heavenly communion or uh, heavenly meal. Um, so it's not so far-fetched. And I would say I'm from Hawaii originally, and in Hawaii we have these great cemeteries, and you'll drive by, and people will put Big Macs on the tombstones and milkshakes. Yeah, you mentioned that. <laughs> I love it. Did, just can I make a note in my will not to put a Big Mac anywhere near the What would you somewhere? put on there, Chris? What, what do you want? Well, my favorite food's apple pie. I don't think that's going to stand the test of time. So maybe a bottle of great sake. It has to be bourbon, rye, or sake probably. Okay. Yeah, just pour okay. a little on, on the grave. Um, or in the feeding tube, uh, yeah, even better. <laughs> uh, so a lot of cultures, you know, instead of just having a wake and food, uh, you say in Hindu Brahmin culture, 16 rice balls are traditionally offered every day over 12 days. So there's a feeding of the dead as they pass, I guess, from one world to another. Mm-hmm. And you see this in all kinds of cultures where offering a meal to the dead, you're kind of giving this message that the dead can still operate symbolically in our world. So you see this across many different cultures, Dia de los Muertos, you'll go to the tombstones and the graveyards and you'll bring uh, the favorite foods of the deceased. Um, but you also see like... You mentioned the um, Hindu funerary culture. You, you also see in Chinese funerary culture this tradition of food offerings to kind of mark this transition of the person who was once living now into the realm of the spirits. And you want to offer them enough food so that they're satiated and they're able to make this journey into the spirit world. So the food served at funerals is also culturally specific. In your book, you write, hidebound Episcopalians, <laughs> talk about people who don't like to eat, prefer aspic small rolls and cheese straws. But you can always tell when a Methodist dies, they're casseroles. Yeah. And, and it's interesting too, right? Because these casseroles are large, portable dishes. They can be carried from place to place. They can be reheated. They serve a large number of people. So there's this functional aspect of the type of food that's served, whether it's meant for individual consumption or community consumption. So there's this underlying narrative that can be told through food. And it's kind of the same thing we do with the lives of people afterwards. When we're at a funeral meal, we're, we're also telling stories. We're telling stories that weren't necessarily able to be told in the religious service itself, they're more personal. So just even, you know, the way a meal progresses, right, it's telling a story. 
Um, eating the sins of the dead. So you talk about 17th and 18th centuries in Great Britain. Official sin eaters were hired by a family. What is a sin eater and what did they do? Basically, wealthy families would hire poor people and place a biscuit or um, a cookie on top of the corpse. And then it was believed that the sins of the deceased would be absorbed by that corpse cake. And then the person who had pledged to be the quote-unquote sin eater would eat the biscuit or the cake and take on the sins of that person. So on the one hand, you are reassuring the living family that the deceased now has less sins to worry about um, or to negotiate with in their afterlife. Of course, you know, there's a other aspect of who ate the sin of the poor, right? So what about sugar? You say in Chinese culture, leaving a funeral, you're given a piece of candy to stop bad spirits following you home. So was something sweet also part of this tradition in many places? Yeah, so sugar is really interesting because sugar, you know, creates this wonderful chemical reaction in the brain. It's a self-soothing response in, in the brain and body chemistry. You're releasing endorphins of pleasure. So in a way, sugar can offer this comforting food response. And I think it is partly where we see this rise of the popularity of handing out candy for Halloween, right? So Halloween was traditionally... All Hallows' Eve, it's the day before you remember the saints and then the dead. And so this becomes a response to kind of offer comfort, um, this sweet taste in your mouth. So it's not just in China, but it's also here. So it's a really interesting similarity that happens across cultures and across countries surrounding the rituals of the dead. So there's some tension here, though. Some cultures don't like the notion of feasting to celebrate or or to mark the passing of someone. You know, post-burial feasting has been criticized in some quarters as excessive. Uh, in some places in Africa, they purposely leave out the spices. The food's supposed to be bland because you're not supposed to really enjoy it. So w- different cultures, I guess, some people celebrated and, and the food was supposed to be great and you had a party or other people didn't want the food to taste that good or to be that elaborate, right? Absolutely. So um, Radhi Kobo Nitsimane, he writes about this practice in South Africa and about how the food isn't supposed to give you pleasure because you're supposed to have bland food so that you honor the dead with your mournful response. It's definitely the opposite of an Irish wake, right? So you mentioned earlier in Hawaii what people might leave Uh, at a gravesite. Are there different traditions around the world in terms of leaving food for people? Definitely. And it just kind of varies, right? So in Korea, um, you have Chuseok, which is kind of an autumn festival, um, a harvest festival. And so there you go to the gravestones of your ancestors, you clean up the gravesite, and then you have a meal and, and you leave these very traditional offerings of fruit and rice cakes and stuff like that. And you you pour wine for the dead. In China, you have a ceremony called Qingming, which is um, the tomb-sweeping ceremony. Um, In Japan, you have Obon. And that one's really fun because it's it's a whole weekend. And in Hawaii, it became a whole month. And so you would go around the islands from temple to temple. And there you serve traditional foods. And again, rice cake is another popular one. They say that you serve rice cake because in um, the mouths of the dead, will, will, when they go back to report on the realm of the living, that their mouths will be stuck together so they can't say anything bad about you. So that kind of <laughs> tends to be a consistent food offering Smart. that's made. It has to be very yeah, right? sticky, short grain rice. Yeah. yeah, so they can only say good things. And so it's believed that in Japan, for example, the – dead will come down to the realm of the living and dance with you. And you, each temple will have a special dance choreographed and you'll hmm. serve them foods and you'll sell certain foods that kind of also create a temple identity. So you'll have each temple will be famous for a different food. It's just a beautiful tradition. Indonesia and Sulawesi, 
you take um, the people out of their graves every year and you clean them up, you brush their hair. You, you take the corpse out of the grave every year? Yes, yes, you do. Yeah, so that's Indonesia, and, and that's really traditional. And it's even traditional to leave the corpse in your living room for a year or two until you can save up enough money to give your relative a really nice funeral. So it's there, you're really interacting with the dead. Um, so Jewish traditions, you say the old joke that almost any Jewish holiday can be summarized as, quote, they tried to kill us, we won, let's eat. Was I thought that was, a, <laughs> I, I guess, funny, I <laughs> rather dark. Um, and then the bagel, this really, I mean, bagels for Jews are an enduring symbol of the endless cycle of life, even in the midst of death. Is that true? Yeah, so that chapter was written by Rabbi Gordy. He is a good friend of mine out on the East Coast, and so he wrote about Jewish food traditions. And, yeah, so I love that. Mm. And you see this in both Judaism and Islam. So this is interesting. In Islam, uh, the chapter that was written by David Wallaloo, he's the scholar from Morocco, so he talks about how you use couscous and other round-shaped food items. And then in Judaism, Rabbi Gordy talks about how you eat bagels. And, and so in both of these monotheistic traditions, we see this emphasis on this return to God, right? And the, the oneness and wholeness through these foods that symbolize that unity. I absolutely love that. I, I just And I hadn't realized until these two chapters came together in the book that both traditions did that. I'm I'm really drawn to the traditions where the food is enjoyed and there there is pleasure in it, even in the midst of celebrating or dealing with death. Because it reminds you you're still alive, right? right? I mean, you're still nourishing your body, you're still feeding yourself, and you're still part of this beautiful life cycle. I remember after um, my mom died, she died almost 25 years ago now, but after she died that same year, a few months later, my best friend had her second child and I was there for the birth. And I just remember thinking, wow, life really does go on. So I had seen a death and a birth in the same year. And that's what I love about food, right? It reminds us that life goes on, even though it's hard sometimes and it can be full of sorrow sometimes, it, it, it still goes on. Candy, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for being on Milk Street. Oh, thank you, Chris. It's been such a joy to be here. That was Candy K. Can, Associate Professor of Religion at Baylor University and editor of the book Dying to Eat, Cross-Cultural Perspectives on Food Death and the Afterlife. You know, in doing research for this interview, I came across a poet, Lee Young Lee, and here he is reading his poem, Eating Together. In the steamer is the trout, seasoned with slivers of ginger, two sprigs of green onion, and sesame oil. We shall eat it with rice for lunch, brothers, sister, my mother, who will taste the sweetest meat of the head, holding it between her fingers deftly, the way my father did weeks ago. Then he lay down to sleep like a snow-covered road, winding through pines older than him, without any travelers, and lonely for no one. That was the poem Eating Together, read by author Lee Young Lee. You know, I've been to a few wakes in my time, but the most memorable was back in 1969. That summer, I drove a Land Rover from London all the way to Nairobi. One evening, camped in Cameroon, I heard singing. I walked down the red dirt road and found myself in a very small village where they were dancing, drinking bush beer, feasting, and celebrating the passing of one of their community. It was a joyous all-night affair, and it proved the point. Food is the universal language, even on a dark night in a small village in Cameroon. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, it's a battle over breakfast. J. Kenji Lopez-Alt and I debate the very best way to cook and peel an egg. That's right after the break. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. 
a hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now it's time to chat with J.M. Hirsch about this week's recipe, no-fry Neapolitan eggplant parmesan. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. You know, Italy's an amazing place. You and I go back frequently. There are so many great recipes there. But it's so interesting that you go to, like, Naples, right, and you think you know what you're going to get, like really thin pizza that's cooked for 60 seconds in a wood-fired oven. But it turns out there's a lot of dishes there you think you know, but you don't (laughs) at all. Absolutely. Every single time. And I actually, I go to this one restaurant in this kind of back alley all the time, La Tavernature Vitozzi. It's run by five sisters. They are phenomenal home cooks, essentially, but home cooks who run a restaurant. And every time I go in and I say, could you please teach me this? Meatballs. Could you please teach me wedding soup? Could you please teach me your grandmother's lasagna? Which, by the way, they still haven't done. And this time, I went in asking them to teach me eggplant parmesan. And every single time, I'm shocked by how different and, frankly, how delicious what they teach me is. Because, you know, we're used to a very heavy eggplant parmesan, breaded, fried, doused with melted mozzarella. In Naples, it's very different. It's lighter. It's brighter. It's very satisfying. Still very rich but a very different experience. 
So breading, the sauce, I mean, how do they start? They salt the eggplant and then press it. What do they do? Here's a thing that's important to know. Now, eggplant parmesan is believed, I mean, all sorts of people debate this, of course, and that's what you do in Italy. You debate the origins of food and everybody claims it. Well, most people agree that eggplant parmesan originates in the south of Italy. And across the south of Italy, you're going to get a spectrum of styles of eggplant parmesan. Some of them are just as breaded and deep fried as what we have in the United States. But some of them, especially in Naples, are the exact opposite. And it comes down to the way it is eaten. You know, in some parts of Italy, and certainly in the United States, eggplant parmesan is a main course. But in and around Naples, it's actually considered a side dish or even, and this is the part that blew my mind, a sandwich filling. What? So Yes, I know. It's crazy. But because of that, and because it's a side or a sandwich filling, it tends to be a much lighter dish. And that's what really drew me to this. So... The way they make it is just blissfully simple. They slice eggplant into long, thin planks, and they very, very briefly fry it in olive oil. Now, they do not bread it at all. They just simply fry it, and we're talking for seconds. Just enough to crisp the edges, give it a little bit of color, and that's it. Just slice it thin, throw it in the oil, get it onto some towels, pat off the oil, and then you're ready to assemble your eggplant parmesan. It's really that simple. And the sauce itself is wonderfully simple and flavorful. Tomatoes, onions, olive oil, salt, not a whole lot else, a little basil maybe. They plank the slabs of eggplant in, you know, in opposing directions, give the eggplant parmesan a little bit of structure. But the other interesting thing they do is the type of cheese. Now, we're used to, again, tons of really stretchy, stringy mozzarella. They use smoked provolone, which adds just a delicious savory. I mean, anything smoked is delicious, of course. But now you're going to add smoked provolone to this, along with a little bit of grated Parmesan, which gives it those kind of savory, nutty notes. It is an amazing combination that is quite rich, but not nearly as heavy or as thick, frankly, as American eggplant Parmesan. So there in Naples, <laughs> you're savoring this wonderful sandwich muttering to yourself about how how revolutionary this is and everybody else is going like yeah this is lunch could you just like just get over it pal right jm thank you uh almost no fry neapolitan eggplant parmesan it's lighter and according to you it's better thank you absolutely thank you You can get the recipe for no-fry Neapolitan eggplant parmesan at MilkStreetRadio.com. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now let's see what's new in the world of J. Kenji Lopez-Alt. Hey, Kenji, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Chris? Pretty good. Um, I went to Paris a few months ago. I was doing a story on a few things. One of them was oeuf mayo, which is that mm-hmm. classic French cafe dish, uh, hard-cooked eggs with a mustard mm-hmm. mayonnaise. So I was with a chef in the kitchen, and he took a dozen eggs with a spider into a big pot of rapidly boiling water, Right. cooked them exactly eight minutes and 40 seconds, took them out into a humongous ice bath. Okay. I mean, not just a, you know, a little bowl, but a big one and let them sit for three minutes, and then took them out. Every single egg peeled perfectly, which in my experience never happens. You get- Rarely happens, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 80 or 85%. Anyway, uh, we went back to the Mill Street, the kitchen, and we did this with dozens of eggs, fresh eggs, old eggs, blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. And every single egg peeled easily. So I'm thinking, okay, it's time to call Kenji, because I know you've done some work on <laughs> I've this. I've done a lot of work. <laughs> I think it's that- going from very hot to cooling off rapidly makes the egg shrink and then separate from the inside of the shell and a more gentle cooling may not be that effective. Yeah, I mean it, I can definitely see why why you would think that but it's also not correct. <laughs> <laughs> so so what do you think? Well, I would say it's it's not the ice bath. It's actually the initial boiling step. When I used to work in, um, in making brunch at a restaurant, I would boil eggs, a lot of eggs, and, and I would get maybe 
70% of them working. And so, you know, for the last 20 years, I've been thinking to myself, if I could go back and uh, give um, line cook Kenji advice, um, what would he most want to know? And the answer is, I, w- I would want to know how to peel boiled eggs. And so a number of times over the past few years, I've done these really extensive tests. So the most recent one was for the New York Times about three years ago, where I got 100 people to come to my restaurant at the time. And we cooked over a thousand eggs, all close to a thousand eggs in uh, all different ways. Uh, and then we got a hundred people to peel them. And uh, and then we sort of saw how well they peeled them, how many sort of minor imperfections there were, how many big imperfections, how long it took each person to peel the egg, et cetera. And what we found doing those tests was that really the, the only thing that makes a huge difference and everything else is really completely negligible. The only thing that makes a difference is how hot the water it is when you start cooking the eggs. So if you start eggs mm. in cold water, and bring them up to a boil, um, they kind of fuse to the shell. But if you lower them into already boiling water or put them into a steamer that's already preheated, then they peel easily. And this is true regardless of whether you shock them in an ice bath or if you just let them cool naturally like on the counter. The the cooling step part of it didn't actually make much difference. But I remember that article... Uh-huh. I'm not going to let you off this easy. Okay. <laughs> In the article, you said it works 85% of the time. Right. Now, I didn't do have 100 people with a dozen eggs <laughs> each, but, but we've done dozens, and it yeah. worked 100% of the time. Yeah. So, so let me just follow up with you. Your ice bath, uh-huh. I mean, was this humongous ice bath? Um, well, if you've only got like a dozen eggs, there shouldn't really be any difference between whether you have an ice bath that's like a couple liters versus you know, five gallons, the temperature is going to be zero degrees no matter what. Isn't there something about the ability of an environment Mm -hmm. to either be a heat sink, for example, Mm -hmm. or to have a transfer of energy, heat, Mm -hmm. from the egg to the water? Doesn't the mass of that cold water have something to do with it? It must. So, okay, so ice cools by melting, essentially. So it takes energy from the hot food, like whether it's a piece of asparagus or an egg, it takes energy from that food and it uses it to melt. And that's really the only thing that is cooling down your food. Right. So as long as at the at the time by the time it's reached equilibrium, you know, which is zero degrees Celsius or thirty two degrees Fahrenheit, by the time right. everything in that bath has reached that temperature, if there is still ice remaining, then it doesn't matter if there was like five tons of ice versus um, a single ice cube. As long as there's ice remaining at the end and the temperature in that bath is homogenous, then it will have cooled at the same rate and it will have cooled the same amount because the only thing that is actually causing any cooling is the ice melting. If you put ice cubes in warm water, yeah. it'll take time for the water to chill. A pretty minimal amount of time, but yes. yeah. So you, you could have 50-degree water yeah. with a ton of ice cubes in it, uh-huh. and the water isn't going to be 32 degrees. So by the time the ice has stopped melting, the water will be 32 degrees, all of it. As long as you have a, you know, a real ice bath, which is there's ice basically throughout the mixture, it's all going to be at zero degrees really, really fast. I mean, in fact, that's the reason why you calibrate your thermometer in an ice bath is because right. the water is going to be at zero degrees in an ice bath. It's not that I don't trust you. It's just you, you and I have lived a lives based on empirical evidence. So right. I, I'm going to go boil my eggs at eight minutes and 40 seconds. Okay. I'm going to take them out and just put them in a bowl uh-huh. and let them cool yeah. and then peel them. And uh-huh. I'll do a separate dozen in a very large ice bath. Yeah. Well, what you, if you really want to be empirical about it, you shouldn't be the one peeling them because you're biased here. So you should do a double blind experiment where you get someone else to cook the eggs and Fine. someone else to peel them. You don't give me a break, do you? <laughs> So one other question, which mm-hmm. is, does steaming uh, raise the temperature of the egg at the same rate as boiling? So steam doesn't transfer heat as fast because, um, you know, water is more dense, and so there's more sort of right. energy per unit water right. volumetrically. Um, but it does it fast enough, as long as you're not trying to steam, you know, a thousand eggs over a, over a, okay. a half inch of water. But yeah, it, it, it does it well enough. So, you know, when I, when I do my eggs at home, I usually put like an inch to half an inch of water in the bottom of a pan that will just fit the number of eggs I'm cooking, bring that to a boil. Then I put my eggs in straight in. It doesn't matter if they're completely submerged or not. They're going to cook just fine and then cover it. And then, then I start my timer. So I do eight to nine minutes for, for hard boiled. All right. So I'm going to go back, boil them, mm-hmm. steam them. Then I'm going to try a, a big bath just letting them cool mm-hmm. naturally. Are, are you going to insist I do a small ice bath, probably? <laughs> yeah, you should do a big bath, a tiny bath, and a just-right bath. Goldilocks, okay. Yeah. All right, I'll do that, and uh, we'll reconvene. And um, I'm putting my money on me 
but <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I bet you're not. <laughs> so, okay, uh, we're going to reconvene a month from now. Okay. And I'm going to go back and do these tests, and we'll see. All right. Yeah, I, I mean, I look forward to hearing about your results. Well, it's tough to argue with Kenji Lopez out, but I'll do it anyway. <laughs> Kenji, thank you. All right, thank you. That was Jake Kenji Lopez Alt. He's the chief culinary consultant for Serious Eats, a food columnist for the New York Times, also author of The Walk: Recipes and Techniques. And now Kenji and I would actually like to hear from you. Which a cooking and peeling method do you think is the best? Simply email us at radiotips at 177millstreet.com or leave us a message at 617-249 3167. That's 617 249 3167. That's it for today. You can find all of our episodes at MilkStreetRadio.com or wherever you get your podcasts. You can learn more about Milk Street at 177MilkStreet.com. There you can become a member and get full access to every recipe, access to our live stream cooking classes, free standard shipping from the Milk Street store, and more. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177 Milk Street. We'll be back next week with more food stories and kitchen questions. And thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Co-founder, Melissa Baldino. Executive producer, Annie Zinzibah. Senior editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp. Associate producer, Caroline Davis, with production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brindle Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Thank you.